July 6th edition of Slick Talk. This is your host, Blackstone Joe, and today I'm bringing you another Meet the Analyst segment. This time we got Ben joining us. He's by no means brand new to the world of used oil analysis. He's been slinging out reports now for about six months, but it's time to get him on the program so you all can learn a little bit more about him. We're going to break down some report data for you. We're going to, of course, debut our brand new segment that I'm very excited about, Failure or Not. So without further ado, let's get into it. Ben, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Joe. So I figure making introductions, when I made my first introduction into the show, I thought a logical starting point was, let me just talk about my first car. Because first cars, a lot of people can relate to that, and it also... Cars are a thing we talk about almost every minute in the building. Mm-hmm. So that's a good starting point. So take us back in time. The first vehicle that was maybe not under your ownership, but it was your daily driver, your go-to. What was it? It was, this was actually the the first car I ever bought with my own money that wasn't just, you know, borrowing the parents' car. Um, I was... 20 years old and I bought a 1976 Chrysler Cordoba from my friend's neighbor for $250 and that car was an adventure in a lot of different ways it was it was massive uh we called it uh the yellow submarine uh-huh. because it was yellow and it was just I don't know if, if anybody out there knows the 76 Cordoba. It is a large, large automobile with a big old 360 in it. I have um, to stop you right there, though. Before working here, did you know it had a big old 360 in it? That I did know, and that was the beginning and end of my engine knowledge. Because uh, <laughs> I remember, I mean, we, we can we can do full disclosures now, because I think the statute of limitations has passed, but... Kristen and Ryan definitely asked me if I knew what engine was in my Sunfire, mm-hmm. like first interview, and I definitely did the smile and nod, like, "Oh yeah, I'm not going to tell you." I mean, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that was, I mean, that's just kind of interesting to me. So you knew out of 360. Did did you have any sort of even just from what people would say around you or or wherever you hung out? Did you have any? engine knowledge at least like were you just handy at all like what was your baseline understanding of engines um i knew that there were spinny bits and there were parts that went up and down and the parts that went up and down made the spinny bits move and bob's your uncle you're moving that's uh that's about as much as i knew uh about engines i learned a little bit with that cordoba um, because it was such a massive pile of junk. Yeah. Um, I learned where the idle screw was on that because I had to turn the idle up to about two grand 
um, to keep it from stalling out whenever I uh, came to came to a stop. So learned about that. Um, I learned about the suspension when it snapped on me while going about 40 uh, down the road, shooting out just a 20-foot rooster tail of sparks. That's a gut check moment. Right yeah. There. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That was uh, that was brown trousers time for sure. So how long was the Cordoba under your ownership? Not very long, thankfully. I only had that car about six months, um, which was good because it had the – uh, combination of an exhaust leak and a uh, driver's side window that wouldn't roll down. So you couldn't drive it for more than oh, 10, 15 minutes without getting a splitting headache from the exhaust leaking into the car. Um, and I finally junked it when the suspension snapped on me driving home from work one day um, and then promptly bought another lemon um, I've had bad luck with used cars. <laughs> I wild. thought the sequel was going to be Cordoba Part Two. I was ready for that. But I no, you, you, know, had, you had a different lemon. The, you know, the I've been looking back on it since I started here, and have been thinking, man, I'd like to have that car again because that'd be a that'd be a neat project to restore. Ah, uh, so that's something I've I've actually been thinking about a little bit because uh, I think Kyle asked me a couple weeks ago. Said, uh, so uh, you started a project car yet? And I said, nah, nah, and I'm not really that type to have a project car. And then I started thinking about it and was like, eh, I bet I could. Well, and, and what's more, I mean, worst case scenario, it's just going to become a training project in the garage. Right, yeah. There has been <laughs> multiple times where Ryan, um, for those listening who may not know, Ryan Stark, president of Blackstone Laboratories, also has a very uh, spacious garage that is on the premises free for employee use and i think it would be thrilling for blackstone in general if one of us ponied up for a beater that we knew the engine had problems or maybe the transmission too and we're just in the garage trying to make heads or tails of it yeah yeah i mean i'm i'm on the lookout right now for a uh 73 oldsmobile delta 88 now, that's entirely too specific. What is the reason for the romanticism with this car in particular? Well, any Sam Raimi fans listening right now already know what I'm talking about. Um, that is the uh, what Sam Raimi dubbed the classic. Uh-huh. His big yellow Delta 88 that shows up in nearly every one of his movies. Okay. Um, most notably, it's the, it's the car that Ash drove um, in the Evil Dead movies. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, those have to be notoriously hard to get your hands on right now, I would assume. Yeah, I've done a little preliminary research, and restored ones go for more than I can afford um, right now. But I wouldn't mind getting one of those and and working on it and getting it back into shape. Just I'm a huge Sam Raimi, Bruce Campbell fan, so, you know, to own, you know, the classic would be pretty awesome so i mean but what lengths are we going here because a lot of our customers you know we get pre-buy samples in mm -hmm. and customers will drive cross country you know and maybe trailer a car back and then they'll you know 
Hopefully they can get a pre-buy sample. Sometimes they can't, and then they just get a purchase sample. And they're looking for, hopefully, a round of good news. Um, would you be willing to go cross-country for this? Is this something that is going to be that serious of a proposition for you? Um, absolutely not. <laughs> no. Nostalgia only goes so far. Yeah, my nostalgia only goes so far, and it turns out so far is about a 200-mile radius. Yeah, no, I, I can appreciate that fully. So one thing that I didn't think about too much, I'm just kind of interested if you have an answer on this. Um, before starting at Blackstone, when it came to the idea of buying oil, mm-hmm. um, that was something where advertising probably would get me there. Like if I saw a really nice commercial um, that just, you know, hit the nostalgia um you know, it, it, it triggered something in me to think this is a good product. Yeah. You know, I'm very susceptible to the Mad Men-esque campaigns. So I probably would have just boiled it down to I saw an ad I liked. Maybe I saw a price I liked and I'm going to just buy that. Mm-hmm. Have you had or, you know, maybe if you haven't you know needed to go buy parts or oil or whatever since you started. But have you had a change of philosophy at all since looking at data since diving into reports and seeing how how things look with various brands or blends out there any change to your philosophy absolutely i no longer feel guilty about buying cheap oil um i i've always been you know i'm a pretty frugal person when it comes to how i live i buy store brand groceries most of the time i buy store brand oil for my car um but i always felt a little guilty about buying the store brand oil because, um, you know, because of marketing, you think, uh, you know, oh, well, let's not, you know, th- I don't want to throw any brands under the bus or anything. But, you know, you, you see this brand and you're like, oh, well, I got it. I should be buying this. This, you know, if I don't put this in my car, if I put, you know, the, uh, you know, store brand oil in my car. I'm probably doing something really bad for the engine. I'm probably being an irresponsible car owner. Uh, And it was really nice to find out when I started working here that I was doing nothing wrong. And that's right. Like what was the, what was the first brand? Cause I, I, I can totally agree with that because just going back into like my own memory bank, just now I can recall taking my car to, I want to say might've been like a toughie. I don't Mm know. Um, and this guy was berating the tech because he had reason to believe the tech put Walmart oil in the car and was like, you do not put Walmart oil in my Ford. And, it, and of course, I mean, you know, that, that opens up a whole can of worms because Ford, Motorcraft, those things are kind of married. Yeah. Um, but Supertech, which is the proper name for Walmart oil, that's something that took me a little by surprise when I started here seeing how similar it looked to everything else yeah same thing with like amazon basics Mm -hmm. so have you i mean just in your short amount of time i'm sure you've already fielded like emails from people saying is this a real deal product like have you had that Uh, that's probably half the emails i get joe yeah uh so many um so many questions i get are either uh is this brand better to use than this other brand or should I be using synthetic or conventional oil? Mm-hmm. Uh, so many questions 
like that. And on that note, that's kind of a good frequently asked question just to cover since we, you know, came right up on it. Synthetic and conventional, what we can do as far as determining. So I had this question come up just yesterday. Someone concerned that a shop might have put conventional in and they want synthetic. We can't determine that because we can't test the base stock, which is what would give you that information. But we can do other things. So there's had to be instances where folks sampled and, and wanted you to know like or tell them, does this look like a certain brand or blend? Oh, yeah. And, I, and what are you going to first when you're trying to, to give people insight on on if this is the, the oil that they hope it is? Um, yeah, re- specifically, as soon as you said that, I was thinking of one sample that I saw a couple of months ago where the person um, – I think was trying to build a lawsuit against a garage uh, because they thought that the garage put uh, conventional right in their engine when they should have only been using synthetic. Uh, but in that case, you know, when when telling people, you know, okay, this is how we can tell whether or not it's it's this brand or something, is uh, the main thing. <clears throat> pardon is uh, looking at the additives, you know, because different brands, especially when you get into like the more boutique brands, right, have pretty distinct additive packages, mm-hmm. you know, like the the oils that will use like a bunch of molybdenum um, in, the, in their oil. Or, you know, there's a couple brands specifically that will use titanium for, for anti-wear. Uh, so that's really the the first place I go to and then compare it to, um, you know, our files of, you know, like our virgin samples, um, you know, as a control to compare it against. And, you know, then it becomes uh, a lot easier to say, yeah, this 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 looks like um, liquid molly. Or this doesn't look like liquid molly because it doesn't have any molybdenum. It's funny, yeah. yeah it's funny you intru- uh, you mentioned that name specifically because I had a, a customer yesterday. They sampled a liquid molly, I think a five forty, and they had MOS two added as well. And it just so happened there wasn't a lick of molybdenum in there. <laughs> so <laughs> Joe, I had the same thing happen last week. Yeah, and then I got an email because I wrote something in the report where I said. Uh, I, I, I was just being snarky, and I think I said, you know, for a, for an oil called liquid molly, you'd think there'd be uh, more molybdenum in it. And then the next day, I got an email from the cat, and he said, uh, oh, yeah, it turns out that wasn't actually liquid molly that I put in there. And I'm mm-hmm. like, oh, okay, yeah, that explains that. Sometimes there can be clerical slip-ups, and sometimes brands have legit oddities across the various uh, blends that they offer. So having a virgin sample sent in for comparison is always valuable because when we get in virgin samples, I think one thing to let listeners know, people a lot of the time aren't terribly specific about what exactly they sampled. Like, if you just write mobile... I gotta wonder, did you mean Mobile One? Did right. you mean Mobile Super? Did you mean or just, just straight I mean, you know, there's so many possibilities. Yeah. So that can kind of muddy the waters a bit when you want that control sample or when you want that comparison. Like, yes, believe 
we have seen a lot of unused oils, but sometimes clerical details are left out. So if you really want to uh, nail something down, sometimes it's good to send a virgin sample of your own that you mm-hmm. know for a fact um, what was coming out of that bottle. Yes. So yes. it's a good thing to do. All right, so you had a couple of reports um, with some interesting data. So where do you want to start? Um, yeah, I have this one where looking at the report, uh, the guy had high potassium and sodium, which, as you are well aware at this point, those are markers for coolant contamination. Right. And it looked pretty straightforward uh, in that respect. High potassium, high sodium, coolant. So I put that in his report and said, hey, it looks like, you know, you've got a coolant leak there. And then he emailed me back and said uh, that he had used a water meth injection kit uh to as as a way to clean out the engine and i spoke to fearless leader ryan about that and turns out that can cause potentially a false positive for coolant right Uh, and that's that's something that I would definitely want to know about before heading into an analysis, for sure. Yeah. Anything um, really kind of outside the norm like that, even if we're not terribly familiar, hopefully gaining some insight on on readings like this. Right, because that's that's something that you know you you don't really even consider when you're looking at that. You know, you see potassium, sodium, and you know that's using one of those kits isn't the most common thing. And not only that here, I mean, you've got other things that I would I would want to lean towards alerting the customer you towards about contamination. That? You have some excess wear. Uh-huh. Yeah, he did have um some 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 extra piston wear with it looks the like, uh, aluminum. Looks like that engine probably has um aluminum bearings as well. Yeah, because um, he didn't have a single a single bit of lead in there, so it looks like probably uh, yeah aluminum bearings. And if you've got a sort, you know, if you have a gasket leak, generally you're going to be looking at bearing wear first. So yeah, there there there's some some context clues here too, and 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 the viscosity as well. Yeah, yeah, the viscosity was pretty was pretty thick, and uh, there was also an anomaly in this one that I never got an answer to and is bugging me to this day, uh, he had 975 parts per million of silicon in And just, just to give everyone listening a little bit of context, oils might start with maybe a, a handful, you know, three to five parts per million, yeah. unless you're running something that like Redline that specifically uses it. So 900, believe, that is a, a number that stands out. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that stands out very much. Um, and seeing that, my my brain instantly went to uh, the infamous turkey baster story. Right, right. Turkey baster, any, any silicone-based product you use to sample, 
you can see a reading like that. You can also see a reading even higher. I mean, I've gotten into the well over a thousand, two thousand parts per million from just a tool used for sampling, um, and that would that would seem to make sense here. Um, I could also see possibly that being sealer material. Um, I wouldn't lean towards dirt, um, especially with most metals in pretty good shape. If all 975 parts per million of silicon was abrasive. Oh, you'd be seeing a lot more wear here because even that little bit of aluminum here isn't isn't a crazy amount. You yeah. know, it's not it's not enough to you know make us really worried or anything. So if that was if that was dirt, he would have a lot more metals in his oil. And you've got another report here, and this is going to be fun because we have we haven't talked too much about aircraft yet. Yeah. Um, and and that's something that you know we we surely plan on doing. Um, it's a big part of our business. So you have an aircraft sample here. Yeah. And I think this one has some relevant information when it comes to hours on the oil. Yes. Yes, very much so. I got this. Uh, I got this sample um across my desk i think this is just from last week and i looked you know i was looking at it and originally uh it was listed as as only having 10 hours of flight okay on the oil which for for people who uh you know don't know that's a pretty low interval oil change for an aircraft typically we see them um, what anywhere between twenty five to fifty hours normally? Yeah, you see a pretty decent spread there. Um, yeah, but yeah, yeah. I would say it's rare that we have a an average interval that's any shorter than twenty five. Yeah, yeah. So, so there were this was listed as only having ten hours on the oil, and overall, the metals in this sample. When you first glance at them, there's there's nothing that stands out. But then when you look, it's like, oh, there's only 10 hours on this oil. For 10 hours on the oil, you know, that's a lot of iron for 10 hours. Yeah, and you look to, I mean, makeup oil would be a bit high for just a 10-hour run as right. well. That would kind of spark some interest into possible oil consumption issues. And, and with just 10 hours on the oil, you might be wondering... You know, if if that took a few months or more to accumulate, who knows? Corrosion could be in the picture. So really, it's a good example where clerical details are going to play a huge role because you found out that it wasn't just a 10-hour run, right? Right, right. Um, I, I wrote the report off, or wrote the report, sent it off, um, and and told the, uh, told the gentleman, you know, hey, your metals are a bit high for for 10 hours and we may be seeing something going on here because they look a lot like where they were at in your last sample that had you know 24 hours on the oil uh and he emailed me back a couple of days later and said oh there was a there was a mix up the the tech uh wrote the wrong hours on the slip i actually had you know about 30 hours on the oil instead of 10 and and he wanted to know would that make a difference in my in my analysis and my numbers? Um, and I emailed him back and said, "Yes, that makes all the difference in the world," because that took a report that was originally 
not that great and uh knowing the correct interval and knowing that this oil had substantially more out three times the hours on it than we thought it did um it took that not great report and made it a perfectly great report and i think what kind of takes people by surprise too is a lot of people assume that we can tell how long an oil has been run right we can lean a direction but the fact is metals can be high either due to accumulation mm-hmm. due to a problem mm-hmm. due to wearing mm-hmm. i mean like there, there's a lot going due, on due to here. operational so, factors exactly it's never a safe bet to just guess and say oh this is obviously a long oil run because if that 10 hour run was right mm-hmm. then we would be looking at some change that would definitely warrant monitoring so right right and there's just too many factors that go into where for for us to look at a sample and give any sort of um responsible guess as to how long it was in place because there's just too many too many things that affect that yeah so we want to give we want to give the most complete analysis and and to do that it's all about dialing in those clerical details from the jump and now it's time for the debut of Failure or not, this is going to be a reoccurring segment on the show where we pull interesting data. It's going to probably showcase really abnormal or just plain unusual increases in wear, contamination. Maybe we're looking at an oil sample with very unusual physical properties, and it's often going to coincide with the engine having a problem, but the question is, did that engine fail or not? And today we're pulling data from a Nissan Frontier and Ben, just looking at these numbers, which by the way, we've posted these on our Facebook and Instagram, so you can reference these if you haven't looked at them already, even pause the show and follow along if you would like. But Ben, digging into this data, we can see some numbers. I want to start right to left. We see mostly good results here, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. It's in the, the most recent one from January. Looks great. And we're looking at numbers here. I do want to preface a little bit for for the listeners, you know, averages for this engine type are not based on a 9,400 mile run, a 12,000 mile run. Um, I think these averages are actually closer to 5,000. So I think right off the bat, Ben, people who maybe have viewed um, a, a report or two in their day might first look at that mileage on the oil and they might think, well, that's that's got to be a main reason for these numbers, but we know that's definitely not true. Um, I'm seeing some increases here, especially we start at the top with aluminum, but just kicking it back to you on metals, what do you think really jumps out here to you that might point to a potential problem? Well, the the first thing that jumps out to me is chrome. Uh, jumped up from one part per million in the May sample, and then you go to the October sample and it's up to 58. And that's a number two that we want to view these in relation to each other, right? Metals. And I I think I've just fielded a lot of calls from customers who have said things like, well, iron's clearly the biggest concern here because iron is at 189 parts per million. Um, that's a really common refrain I'll get from a customer. They'll jump to the biggest number mm-hmm. and say, well, that's 
clearly what's the you know the most out of line, the biggest concern. But we know most engines just don't make hardly any chrome at all. Yeah, so and it doesn't a- take and it doesn't take very much chrome at all to show a potential major problem. Yeah, because when you look at things like piston rings, there's just there's not a lot of metal from those in relation to everything else you have in the engine. You got so many steel components that can contribute some iron. So we know when we have chrome, even in the double digits, we we kind of start to be pretty wary. Um, but yeah, all the way at 58 parts per million, that's a key indicator that something isn't right. And now I want to bring in a couple customer predictions. We posted this on our Instagram story and then on our Facebook feed, like I mentioned earlier. And I want to thank everyone for commenting and kind of jumping in and playing the role of analyst for a little bit. So on our Instagram page, we had a customer and friend of the program, JC. He said, no way, this engine isn't on the road anymore. Failure. And I cannot blame you for having that thought. Uh, but going back to Facebook, we have Steven who offered piston rings would be my guess. Lead increase could be from trash in the oil wearing bearings. Also more miles in the most recent oil change. But with aluminum, chrome, and iron, I think some piston ring or ring failure. So that's certainly, I would say, you're... You are in the right place as far as grouping these metals together and yeah. kind of knowing the, the location. Um, and here we have from Jason, he mentions, I'm guessing a piston ring broke, scored all the way through the cylinder liner, and started eating into the cylinder wall. In the process, it's also starting to chew into the piston itself. And he mentions these are healthy assumptions. And I would agree, again, we're having some really intuitive thoughts here. I'm, I'm really proud of uh, the customers and, and the listeners who are offering this because this is a not bad analysis. Yeah, right? no, no, no. This is, uh, this is, that's pretty impressive. And something that I didn't really, uh, I, I kind of, I, I glance over it because I, I think I know a little bit um, about what I'm looking at. So I, I, I didn't highlight it at first, but we had Brandon mention it slowly got more coolant in the oil. I'm saying the coolant wore the bearings, resulting in failure. And I see why this person thought about coolant, because if we glance down at coolant markers, we do have a notable sodium level. But Ben, I really don't lean towards coolant being the source, and I think you no. probably are on the same page. No, no. Um, no, it doesn't. it doesn't look like it. To me, because, um, yeah, there's a lot of sodium in there, but there's no potassium. Yeah, and when we say no, we're going to say no um, with full knowledge that, yes, you do see some 2 or 3 ppm readings. But we know that such trace levels doesn't yeah. actually translate into the existence of... Right, food, right? right. You see small levels like that in almost every sample from an engine oil so you know two three parts per million of potassium is essentially none yeah you're going to have a little bit of variation in these very very minor levels um so yes i'm totally in agreement with ben on this one the sodium looks like oil additive it does not resemble coolant we have a level here that is high um, but with the lack of potassium coolant's a long shot and of course, we do have the benefit of knowing how this story ends. So we are going to speak even a little bit more firmly than we might if we were just looking at a sample on the day to day. 
But what actually happened to this vehicle, we finally have the story for you. If you've been waiting, here it is. So this Nissan Frontier, we're going to start at the top as far as what went wrong first. So we have misfiring issues. The engine was sputtering. These are the first kind of symptoms to go along with these high wear levels. And so what happened first is the owner looked into changing the plugs. Still no luck there. And then a coil pack became the next suspect, a bad coil pack um, causing the rough operation. But no luck there. Um, so it was going from bad to worse, resulting in an episode of limping along at 30 miles an hour on the highway. No idea how this engine was going to survive. Fortunately, it did. They were able to get towed to a Nissan dealership. But unfortunately, by the time all of this happened, you know, the, the engine limping along, needing a tow, all of that. So what went wrong from there was the catalytic converter was plugged. And only after replacing the catalytic converter did these metals go back down. Did the engine happen to stay on the road? So yes, indeed, this was not a complete failure. We have wear levels that are off the charts. They clearly speak to a problem. But this engine is alive and well. This engine is continuing to rack up miles, and we saw improvement following this episode. So, Ben, I think this is just a really good example of why when a customer calls or emails and they're really worried about bad set of results, there is very good reason why we don't just say, uh, yeah, it's done. It's done for. Right, right, right. Yeah, it's if your engine is still running, then there a lot of times there is still hope for it. And, you know, there are a, a lot of different problems that may cause pretty high amounts of wear, but that does not automatically mean that your engine is just done for. Yeah, you need to rely on operation is so key. I think, like, first of all, if we find high wear, but you're not noticing rough operation, mm -hmm. let's hold back. Yeah. But on the flip side, if you are noticing rough operation and high wear, we need to proceed beyond just oil analysis because oil analysis is going to help point you in the direction. It's going to help. In this case, oil analysis wasn't going to offer the simple conclusion of, oh, you have a bad catalytic converter. But I think the true value of analysis right here is it showed the customer what effect that problem was having on the engine. I think a lot of people think first, oh, well, oil analysis is only helpful if you can identify the problem. But right. a lot of the time you can use it to see what effect other issues are having on wearing parts, not necessarily from you know the crankshaft or the cylinder liners, but there's so much that can cause poor wear. And if you're using analysis, you can at least see what kind of toll certain issues are taking because like in truth a lot of the time people just can't afford to investigate right away you sure. know it would have been so much more uh, cost labor intensive if they want to tear into the engine and see like all right so what all impact did that catalytic converter have versus well i can just take a 30 dollar sample and see what's up and then kind of proceed from there right Right. Yeah. And even if you know, looking at these results, it it doesn't necessarily point to an exact cause of it. It can, if I should say, if nothing else, point you in the right direction of general things to start looking at.
Yeah. And just, you know, before we wrap it up, just kind of revisiting um, some of the customer predictions, you know, we had some talk in there about lead and bearing wear. And, um, you know, sure enough, you can see some increases there. But if these numbers came to me and the customer was asking, what's the overall condition of the engine? You got to look first at cylinder area. And then, yeah, when you have some smaller amounts of extra wear throughout, I think it would just, it'd be a mistake to say, well, the condition of the bearings is, is, is something you need to look into as well. Now, I think uh, another benefit of oil analysis is we can dial in potential problem areas to watch going forward. And it looks to me like the cylinder area. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. This is very clearly cylinder area. I mean, there's a, a little bit of extra lead in there, but that's not enough lead to, to make me all that worried. What I'm looking at is the cylinder area. I'm looking at the pistons. I'm looking at the rings. I'm looking at the cylinders themselves. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. So that that's going to bring this segment to a close. But what we want to do is keep revisiting reports where customers can see just how uh, varied uh, these conclusions can be to a, a sample that looks unusual. It looks bad. But we want to provide examples of engines where you do see some failures, you do see recoveries, because truly that's what we're in the business of looking at every day is wild turnarounds, maybe sudden failures, you name it, we see it all. So we just want to provide you know those examples. So yeah, no, it's been fun to go over the data and we look forward to doing this again. And thank you for listening to this episode of Slick Talk. I also want to thank my co-host for the day, Ben. Thanks so much for having me, Joe. I had a good time. And we'll be back with you soon enough. But for now, this is Blackstone Joe signing off.